Good morning. Um, thank you all for being here today. So uh, we kicked off a new series about two weeks ago um, called Questions and Reasons. And we've been, we're looking at some questions that keep people from faith, and we're looking at some reasons at the end, end part of the series um, as to why we should believe. And i got to give uh, big props to Megan for last Sunday. So great job, Megan, teaching last week on how do we know there's only one true religion. And then I also need to give a shameless plug. I'm actually not doing this because of why you think I might be doing this. But uh, next Sunday, I somehow tricked my wife into doing next Sunday's sermon. Now, don't tell her it was a trick. She might back out on it. But it was a trick. And, uh, and a lot of the guys, uh, guy leaders will be gone next Sunday for the men's conference. But I really want to encourage you. Um, I'm not just saying this because it's my wife. I'm saying this because of the topic and, um, and that sort of thing. But... I really want to make sure that, that you tell people that you're here next week. My wife will be talking about, um, isn't Christianity a straitjacket? The idea being, doesn't Christianity steal our freedom? And I know this topic in particular is one that, that many of you are struggling with right now in the room, but also you've got friends that are walking through that or they're wanting to reject the whole thing because it just feels like it's all restricting and, and kind of keeps you hemmed in if you decide to follow Jesus. So my wife will be sharing a lot of her own personal story, because that really relates to her own testimony, as she talks next Sunday. So please be here next Sunday. Uh, bring people with you. I would love to um, have you hear that one as well. So, um, but today, so we're, we are um, answering this question today. How can a good God allow suffering? And uh, a few years ago, actually many years ago now, my son is now 11. He was... Back when he was three, hard to believe that he he was three at one point, but he was. And uh, he and I would go on little long walks in our neighborhood, and he was just real curious about the world. So he would, you know, ask me really theologically astute questions. Things like, he would say things like, Daddy, uh, who made the grass? And I would say, well, that's easy, son. You know, God made the grass. And he'd say, well, Daddy, who made the trees? Like, well, that's easy, son. You know, God made the trees. And then he would start asking more complex questions like this. We're walking along, and he would say, Daddy, who made the mailboxes? And I was like, well, okay, so God didn't create the mailboxes, but he created people with the ability to take things out of the ground and then make mailboxes, all right? And then we're walking along, we're walking on the pavement, and he says, um, he looks down at the little cracks in the pavement, and he says, Daddy, who made the cracks? And I'm going, all right, so you see, son, in God's sovereignty, he didn't create the cracks, but he created such a world that there would be cracks or there might be cracks. He allowed for the possibility of the cracks, but he didn't create the cracks. And I think he said, Daddy, I want a cookie. I'm serious. And, but you realize the question he's asking is actually a fairly profound question. Daddy, who made the cracks? And we would say in Christian theology, we would say that when it comes to evil and suffering, we would say that God didn't create evil. God does not create evil. He allows for the possibility of that, obviously. Um, but he does not create evil in that sense. So it's, a, it's actually a theological question. Who made the cracks? Well, we know that our world has cracks. We know that things are not the way they're supposed to be. We know that there is suffering. We know that our lives 
have cracks, right? And we know things are not the way they're supposed to be, and, and so God did not create evil and suffering in that sense, but he obviously has a, created a world in such, such a way that it allows for that possibility. So raise your hand if you've ever asked this question, how can a good God allow suffering? Raise your hand if you've asked that question yourself. How many of you have friends that you've heard ask this question? Raise your hand. So many of us have, have dealt with this question in some way. Um, I've got this friend that I've been trying to talk to. He's not a believer. And part of his story was when he was in, high, he was in junior high, he had some medical condition for a season of time where he was in a wheelchair for two years, this freak medical situation. And then he's, he's fine now, but he was wheelchair-bound for two years. And everyone knows that junior high is about the worst time of your life anyway. And this happened in junior high. And so all of his people are making fun of him, and, and he had to be homeschooled for a while because he just couldn't handle the, the, um, the abuse at school from some friends, some friends of his. And he said ever since then, he really questioned, like, how can there be a good God? So he says he believes in God, but he's not a Christian by any means. And so many people will turn their back on God because of this question. or They, ne- they never get an answer to this question, at least in their own minds, so they end up rejecting the whole thing outright. He's not the only person who has rejected Christ because of this question. Read this quote. This one person says, I just don't believe the God of Christianity exists. God allows terrible suffering in the world, so he might, either, might be either all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible could not exist. I think this is a common belief for many people. They claim, they say, you Christians claim there's this all-powerful, perfectly loving God out there somewhere. But if he's perfectly loving, then why is there all this suffering? And if he's all-powerful, then why doesn't he end the suffering? Therefore, this kind of God cannot be a God that exists. Someone else says this, I won't believe in a God who allows suffering, even if he, she, or it exists. Maybe God exists, maybe not. But if he does, he can't be trusted. So you can tell that for for many people, it gets real personal. They just can't understand how there can be this good and all-powerful God at the same time if there is the suffering that we see in the world uh, today. So in week one, we talked about these three things that can lead to be a barrier to faith. And the three things are these. There's intellectual, what we think. There is personal, what we feel. And there's social, who we associate with. And we talked about how these three can often work together. And you might have a question, intellectual question, and then something happens in your life that begins to make you feel a certain way about some of those questions. And then also, who you surround yourself with. Friends can influence what you think and feel about these questions about God. So when we are not, so the suffering question specifically, I think whenever we are not experiencing personal suffering in that moment, the suffering question is at least an intellectual question. But then when things hit your life, it becomes very personal. And you begin to feel a certain way about God. 
And I'm trying to get you to see through the series how your, your, your questions, your intellectual questions, and then your feelings, how you feel about things, become all intertwined together. And, and so today we're going to focus a little bit more on the intellectual question, but I want to be sensitive this morning knowing that there are people in this room experiencing very personal things right now. And you're walking, you've got the personal feelings, not just the intellectual questions. And so I'll be addressing more of the intellectual question um, today, but I want to be sensitive to the personal feelings that are in this room. Like, for example, when I, um, over the last few months, our church lost two godly men to heart attack, just like that. And one of them had just completed running the stairs at Temple High. He's in his 60s. He was in his 60s. And I know that no one in here ever runs the stairs at Temple High, but he was doing this in his 60s, and on his way home from that workout, collapsed and died of a heart attack. An awesome, godly man. And then one of our former leaders in this room, Jeff Hartford, was at home with his wife and Hunter, their son, and just walked outside and and fell over with a heart attack, and he passed away a few months ago. And so the appropriate response in those moments is when I went into that hospital room and saw... Uh, Cindy Blevins, John Blevins' wife, and a, a crowd of TBC people around her. Or when I went to Janet Harford's home and saw Hunter and Janet after Jeff passed away, the appropriate response in that moment is not to walk in with my Bible and say, guys, let me, let me tell you why suffering happens. That's not the appropriate response in that moment. Okay, so for those of you in this room, I want you to know My goal this morning is not just to lay out all the intellectual reasons for you. I am trying to meet you where you are in your personal struggle, but we still have to get to some of the intellectual questions as we look at this topic this morning. So don't misinterpret my, this this sermon for dismissing the personal feeling that many of you are walking in, even as we speak here in this room. So we're going to be in a few little passages here. This morning, I want you to know, for those wrestling with this question, here is the really good news. We see the same questions that you and I wrestle with, especially as it relates to suffering in in particular. We see the same questions addressed and people questioning in in these pages. I'll give you some examples. Jeremiah 12, verse 1. Jeremiah says, O Lord, I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why does the righteous person suffer while the unrighteous prosper? This was a question that I just thought about in a real personal way a few months ago when Gary got bad news again about his cancer. This is several months ago. And I just began thinking, you know, here he was diagnosed when he was 58 years old, fairly young by most standards, with this uh, eye cancer that eventually led to liver cancer. And I was just in this place of like, God, why is this? I mean, he's this faithful man leading our church. I've been here forever, and yet it sure looks like you're trying to take him from us. And then I heard a report about Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy magazine, who was still alive and healthy at 91. And something in me just went, that's just not right. How can you strike this godly man with cancer at 58 while Hugh Hefner is healthy at 91? 
It just doesn't seem right. And so we often ask the question, how can the righteous person suffer while the unrighteous prosper? And we see this dilemma as we look at our world. But here's what's crazy is the Bible. You see that question in the Bible itself in Jeremiah 12.1. The next verse, Habakkuk 1, verses 2 and 3. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Then we see in Psalm 6, verse 3. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? You read the Psalms, and you see chapter after chapter, and there's question after question wrestling with this topic of suffering. And I think here's what this shows us. The writers of the Bible had the same questions and doubts that you and I have. We see in the Scriptures that God weaves into the Bible itself the same questions that every person throughout history has had. So I want to I caution you that before you decide to throw all of this out because of the question, know that you're also throwing out all the verses and passages that are wrestling with the same question you're wrestling with. God put the wrestling in these pages for us to read and to have hope and to connect with. I think it also shows us that God wants us to voice our doubts, voice our questions to him. Why else would he put them in these pages? I mean, if this is the inspired word of God, why does God put in his word the same questions and doubts that many of us struggle with in the here and now? So I think it says to us this, that God, God can handle it. God can handle the questions that you and I might have. So we find the questions in the Bible. We also find some answers in the Bible as well. So we're going to look at James chapter 1. Turn to James chapter 1. Looking at verse 2 and through 4 in James chapter 1. And James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, quick quiz. I know you guys, this is Sunday and tomorrow's a holiday, but okay, who wrote the book of James? James wrote the book of James. Good job, guys. Now, James, he, had a, he was really significant. So, who was James? Anybody know? Okay, it was, someone mentioned, wait, I think I heard something about Jesus. Who was James again? He was the brother of Jesus, the earthly brother of Jesus. Now, what you might not know, it's not as if when Jesus and James were little, that Jesus said to his brother, hey, I want to tell you a secret. Um, I'm really the son of God. And, uh, and it wasn't like they said that, and then James is like, oh, okay. And he believed it. It was not what happened at all. Um, there was probably some brotherly jealousy that went on because that tends to happen when one of them is perfect and one of them is not. And so... James didn't actually believe his own brother was the Messiah until after the resurrection. So imagine this. All these thousands of people that are following Jesus around, the 12 disciples, all those people that believed in Jesus or were following after him, James was not one of them. 
his own brother was not one of those people until he saw something miraculous and it was the resurrection and then he believed that his own brother was the Messiah. And then he wrote the book of James. And then he became a martyr for the faith. So this is the person we're talking about. So James knows something about trials and tribulation. He knows about doubt. He knows about suffering. When he says, count it all joy, he does not mean this superficial happiness or He's not saying, you know, count it joy when you, when you encounter various trials, meaning whenever a trial happens and you just have this superficial happiness about the trial. He's not discussing that. He's talking about how you need to see the whole process that God's taking you through and consider it joy because of all that, that God is going to do in your life. He's talking about a deep spiritual joy that transcends your circumstances. So how do we do this? I want to give you a few points to to think about. We can consider it joy, not because we love the process, but because we have a greater desire for the end result. Now, I have never loved running, ever, just for the sake of running. How many of you, you love to run just for the sake of running? You're on cross country, you like that kind of thing because you're crazy. Raise your hand. Um, So some of you are in that boat. Um, I've never been one that loved running just by itself. For me, I needed a ball to chase. So it was soccer, basketball. I only ran to get in shape for those sports. When the season was over, I didn't just go running for fun. And then as I got into an, a, my adult life, my wife, she loves to run. And she was like, you need to start running, and you're just going to feel a lot better and different if you do that versus, like, just your normal, you know, guy thing, like, I'm going to go to the gym and lift weights. And, and so she'd encourage me toward that. I'd be like, I'm not doing that. I'll be fine. And so um, I never loved it, but then I started doing some running. And I started getting into it, and I was like, I'm going to start running. And I'm not, I'm not a runner. I'm, I'm still, like, doing it on the treadmill where it does half the work for you. That's, when I, that's how I run most of the time. But I began to see over the last couple of years that I just, I just felt different. I felt more awake throughout the day. I just felt more alive when I do these kind of cardio workouts versus what I used to do. And my wife is doing that little, that loving thing where she's like, I told you so. And, and so I see it now. And I still don't really love running, but what gets me through it is I love the results. So you don't have to love running. You just need to love the results. And I think the same thing is true of suffering. This should be our view of suffering. We don't have to love suffering. You just need to love the results. And if you have a greater desire for the end result, you will be able to get through the suffering. The second point, every instance of suffering is a test of faith. Now, I think you all can empathize with this. But I always hated tests in school. And, but what do tests do? Tests reveal something. Tests reveal what's beneath the surface. So when you take a test at school, it reveals either knowledge or ignorance about the subject matter, right? When you think about a cancer test, a cancer test reveals what's under the skin. About a year ago, I went to the dentist's office, and they do that 
that panoramic x-ray thing like every few years to make sure that just stuff's normal, I guess. And they bring this scan into the room I'm sitting in, and the doctor's like, you know, when a doctor says this, it, it, they're not trying to freak you out, but they still end up freaking you out anyway. And he says, yeah, we got this, um, it's probably nothing, but we have this area right here, right up in your sinus cavity that could, it's probably a cyst, probably nothing, but may want to get it checked out. And you know what that means, right? They're not going to use the word cancer, but that's what they're implying. And you're like, you mean like that could be a tumor? He's like, well, it's probably not, but you need to get it looked at. Okay. I leave that office, and I drive straight to Scott and White. I'm like, can I get in to see an ENT like right now? And so they make an appointment. I talk to the guy, and he schedules me for a, a CT scan where they're going to x-ray everything and see what, what's in there really few days later. So like for several days, I'm kind of freaking out about like, do I have a tumor in my face? And then I get the CT scan results back and I go meet with the doctor. He's like, yeah, it's just a cyst. It's really nothing to be worried about. And I'm like, right. But here's the thing. I hate those kinds of tests, but those tests, they reveal what's under the skin. They reveal a reality that needs to be addressed. So if it was cancerous, it could be dealt with. I think suffering and trials are kind of like that, in a sense. Every instance of suffering for us is a spiritual test revealing faith or doubt. Trials reveal what's under the surface. They bring what's under the surface to the surface to be dealt with. And whenever we go through a trial... We are really tempted to shake our fist at God and say, no, the trial is what made me like this. The trial is what made me angry at God. But in reality, the trial is revealing what was already there. The trial is revealing what was inside you already, which was this entitlement towards God that says, don't you ever let something bad happen to me. And now, in the suffering, that's just, that's just being squeezed out. That's just what was already in you is just now coming out as you go through the suffering. And here's why this is a, a weird blessing. Because then you can see what's there, and you can now deal with it. And you can take it to God, and, and you can turn to God in the midst of whatever you're dealing with. The next point Suffering brings about an addition by subtraction that makes us more complete. So what does that mean? How do you get an addition by sub- That doesn't ma- add up mathematically. What does that mean? Suffering always feels like something is being taken away. The definition of suffering is something is being subtracted from your life. It always at least feels that way. It could be that you lost a friendship, that you lost a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It could be that you lost a parent to death or maybe a divorce, lost an opportunity you thought you had. Maybe you've lost all hope. And yet suffering always feels like something got taken from you, subtracted from your life. But I want you to see what verse 4 tells us. It says, When steadfastness, look at that, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
So there's the addition by subtraction when it feels like something's been taken from you when you've lost something. What God says is happening is there's now something added to your life and its steadfastness. And when it's allowed to have its full effect, you're actually made complete. You're now lacking in nothing. So through this subtraction, there is something deeper that's added to your life. There is a gain in the loss. Maybe you can relate to this quote by this man. This is a man who lost his eyesight because of a gun, a a drug deal gone bad. He was shot in the face and he survived, but he lost his eyesight. And he said this once he became a Christian. As my physical eyes were closed, my spiritual eyes were opened. I finally saw how I'd been treating people. I changed. And now for the first time in my life, I have friends, real friends. It was a terrible price to pay. And yet I must say it was worth it. I finally have what makes my life worthwhile. When we suffer, something is taking, taken so something better can be gained. And here's how we can count it all joy. Because in the midst of great suffering, God wants to create in us this thing called steadfastness. That's what's being added to your life. And steadfastness means this strength or this perseverance or endurance. And these are the things that God's trying to add to our lives, even though it feels like this horrible subtraction and something was just taken from us. John Piper says this, when Christians treasure Christ more than what they are losing, this is the greatest testimony to how great God is. When Christians suffer and they cling to Christ in the midst of the suffering, to the outside world or even to other believers, this is a great testimony to how great God is when they see someone cling to God in that way as they go through the suffering. Look again at verse 4 where it says, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Because here's the next point. We are only made complete if we let steadfastness have that full effect. Here's what I mean by that. Whenever we suffer, I think we want to bail. We want to jump ship, bail on God, bail on the church, bail on his word, bail on the whole thing, throw the whole thing out. But I want you to understand this. If you do that at any point throughout your life, if you truly throw the whole thing out because of the suffering that God has allowed to happen in your life, you then short-circuit the process. And you now don't allow steadfastness to have its full effect. In order for steadfastness to have its full effect, you can't short-circuit the process and throw the whole thing out because of whatever it is you're going through. You'll you'll stop the whole thing short of what God wants to do in your life if you respond in this way. So in the Bible, we see God giving us some reasons. We see God puts in the, in the words of the Bible, he puts in examples of people struggling in the same way that we struggle. That's all throughout the scriptures. You see it everywhere. We also see some, 
some answers and some reasons, generally speaking, why God has allowed suffering. But I want to go back to our question, how can a good God allow suffering? And try to answer this as best I can for you. And here's the first point in relation to that. Evil and suffering isn't evidence against God. Evil and suffering is not evidence against God. Many people look at the world and they see what they think is pointless evil and suffering, and they conclude, I see no point to all this evil and suffering, therefore a good God cannot exist. But behind that statement, there is a belief. If you recall in week one, I tried to show you how behind every question and doubt that people have, there is a belief system that they have adopted in faith. And they're living out a certain kind of faith in the same way that you and I are living out a certain kind of faith. So what is the belief system that's behind the statement, I see no point to all this evil, therefore a good God cannot exist. There is a belief, and it's this. If evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. And that person is believing that in faith. But is there a chance that we're not seeing the full picture? Is there a chance that from our vantage point, we're not seeing the full picture that God sees? Because again, if you open up the scriptures, you you see in the Bible where there are stories where to the main character of the story, the suffering seems pointless. We have the advantage of reading the story. We know the ending to these stories, and yet the main character in the story doesn't know the full story yet. They don't know the ending. They're just living life. And I think of someone like Joseph. When Joseph was kidnapped, or he was kidnapped by his brothers, and he was sold into slavery and put on a caravan to be taken down to Egypt, Joseph had no idea what was going to happen to him. He could have been killed for all he knew. And he's in years and years and years of suffering away from his family in Egypt, and then he gets gets thrown into jail for years. And he sees no point in the moment all this suffering he's experiencing, and yet later on in his life, it all comes into full picture, and he sees his family come back into Egypt, and he sees that his position now in Egypt is is God's purpose and plan to rescue these people and bring them down to Egypt and make a huge nation then have them go back to the promised land. And Joseph had no idea what what God was going to do. And then I think about Job. There's a whole book called Job about this guy who had everything going for him. And yet his whole family's taken away except for his wife. All of his livestock taken away. All of his riches taken away. He had boils on his skin. And in the moment, he has no idea that God and Satan had this conversation. And Satan basically told God, if I can take away this man's wealth and everything he has, he'll reject you. And God said, go ahead and do it. And so Satan did it. And then instead of him rejecting God, he worshiped God. Job did. And in the moment, he had no idea what God was doing. He had no idea this would become a book in the Bible, that his life would be on display for millions and millions of people to see for years and years and years. 
And he had no clue what God was doing in the middle of that suffering. And then I think about the cross. I think about Jesus going to the cross, and to the disciples, the suffering seemed pointless. The suffering seemed like a defeat. The suffering seemed like this can't, this is, this whole last three years have been a waste because God has abandoned this man, Jesus. This man can't be who he said he was because no God would ever die on a cross. And yet there he was on the cross, bleeding and dying. And to the disciples, it seemed like pointless suffering. But we know the point of the cross. We know the purpose of the cross was to save and offer salvation to all of humanity so that man could be connected back to God again through relationship with Jesus. So just open the Bible. You see many examples of people experiencing things where in the moment, they have no idea what the purpose is. They have no idea what the point is. And they never, and some of them never found out until after they passed away. I think even in our lives, we see, maybe even in your young life, you can ask some of the leaders in this room that are a little bit older, that they can look at their life and say, you know what, when I was experiencing this kind of suffering in my 20s or in my teens, I saw no purpose for it. And yet they can look back now and say, you know what, as hard as that was, I can see the purpose in that now. And so all I'm trying to say to you is, even though suffering might seem pointless to you in the here and now, and you might ask the question, how can there be any purpose for some of the suffering I see in my life or lives of others? Might there be some reasons for it from God's vantage point that we just can't see and that we might never know while we're living life on this earth? So evil and suffering isn't evidence against God, but we can also say with confidence that evil and suffering is evidence for God. Some people will say, how can God exist when there's all this evil? And I want to turn the question around for you. If there is no God, then how can we call anything evil? If there's no God, how can we say anything is evil? My kids and I, we love to watch those, uh, those shows. You see them on Netflix or maybe on, we just record them on TV, but those Planet Earth shows, Blue Planet, those really amazing, it's amazing cinematography, and they just, they take you down to the ocean, take you up into the sky with birds, they go to jungles, they go all over the world, and those shows are pretty amazing to watch. And the best ones are when they're in Africa, and you'll just see some lion tearing into a gazelle. Like, those are the best ones, in my opinion. And my kids will will watch those, and and there's a part of you that's, like, cheering for the gazelle. Like, you want the the gazelle to get away. And most of the time, they'll they'll show that clip, but then they'll show always the one that's the climax, and it's like, this is where the gazelle goes down. And... We, we, we're, we wince, and we're like, oh, that doesn't seem right. But then you're also just like, well, that's, just, that's, that's, how, that's how animals live. We know the animal world, it is survival of the fittest. And we would never call that evil, that a lion killed a gazelle. But what if a gunman enters into a school and takes the lives 
of children and teachers. Everything in us just screams out, this is evil. And we're right to call that evil. But what is the difference? We would never say about the gunmen and the children, well, that's just survival of the fittest. That's just what happens. There's something in us that knows that's evil and that's wrong. We don't say it's the same thing as the lion and the, and the gazelle. We know there's a difference between those two events. This is the very thing that led the great C.S. Lewis to Christ. He was an atheist, and he had this question, how can a good God allow suffering? And so he rejected the whole thing. He was an atheist. But then he, began, he became challenged with the question, wait, if there's no God then how do I know to call anything evil? And so he, he flipped and he became a Christian. This is odd because he became a Christian because of evil and suffering. Because he recognized if there's no God, I can't call anything evil. And so he saw the moral framework in which we all live under and we just adopt, even when we're not believers, we still adopt it. And he recognized that had that moral framework had to come from God himself and not from mankind. And so he became a Christian because of that. And so I will tell you that evil and suffering is a bigger problem for the atheist than it is for the Christian. To the person who's saying that God can't exist because of evil and suffering, they still have to do two things. They still have to find an explanation for suffering and a solution for it. And atheism does neither. Christianity does, does both. Christianity tells a reason for suffering and finds a solution for it. Atheism does neither. One writer says this, Though Christianity does not provide the reason for each experience of pain, it provides deep resources for actually facing suffering with hope and courage rather than bitterness and despair. So choosing not to believe in God doesn't suddenly give you a reason for suffering. So think about this. If you're someone who says, I'm going to reject the whole thing because I can't think of a reason for why God would do this, well, your new position, whether it's atheism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, whatever new position you now go to, doesn't suddenly give you the reason for suffering either or the resources to get through it. So I'll often tell students if they say to me they're, they're rejecting the whole thing because of suffering, I will say this, well, listen, life is going to bring you suffering. Do you want to suffer with Jesus and with the church or suffer apart from Jesus and apart from the church? That's really your options. And one of the most depressing things to me would be to suffer apart from Jesus and his church. Barry Cooper says this, The conclusion is this, if we decide to reject God out of hand because of the suffering we see in the world, then we must come to terms with something far worse than suffering, meaningless suffering. Satan wants to use suffering to destroy your faith, but God wants to use it to build your faith. And I know to us it might seem meaningless, but you and I don't sit where God sits. And so I want to bring all this back to the idea of the cross. There is no other religion that claims that their God came in the flesh, dwelt among us, suffered for us on our behalf, and died for us on our behalf, 
and then rose again on our behalf. There is no other religion in the world that even makes that claim. And so the question of suffering is one that the Christian faith deals with extensively throughout the Bible. Not just giving you reasons for why we suffer, but also giving us reasons for how God brings us through it and the resources in which to do so. So when we think about suffering, I want you to understand we worship a God who suffered, but it didn't end there. We know about the resurrection. Read this last and final quote. We should not be surprised that a lifelong journey with God might bring us suffering and hardship. If the cross teaches us anything, it teaches us that sometimes God comes through after we've been killed. Father, we're grateful and we're thankful that you do give us some reasons. And yet we know in this room there are many people struggling personally with this idea. I pray, God, you'd meet them where they're at this morning, understanding who you are and that you're a good God. I pray this in your name. Amen. Go ahead and do your discussion questions at your tables.